0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionrowbiblechurch.com. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. We've been in Deuteronomy chapter 5 for some months now as we've worked through the reiteration of Moses on the plains of Moab to... The new generation about to go into the promised land of the 10 words of Moses, the 10 commandments. We come now to really a transitional section in the book of Deuteronomy. And before we turn our attention to that, I just want to talk to you about preaching and listening to preaching in certain genres of scripture. Uh, The Bible is broken down into different genres, it wasn't written in all didactic, which is conversation wasn't written in all epistolary, which is letters. It wasn't written in apocalyptic entirely, which would be sections of Daniel and Zechariah, um, Isaiah, uh, Revelation, which is telling of the, the end of the world and the coming age. It wasn't written in all historical narrative, uh, which was just describing events. It wasn't all written in wisdom uh, connotations uh, or, or even um, um, uh, metric psalms or music. Instead, God chose to use all of those genres, every possible genre at his disposal to communicate what he wanted and intended to say to the people he intended to hear it. We come to a section tonight, though, that really tests what you do with a text when you preach. And it tests what an audience or a congregant does to that text when they listen to it preached. And the reason is... It is pure and simple historical narrative. And the great question of preaching and listening to historical narrative comes down to a simple proposition. How do you turn description into prescription? In other words, how do you take what happened and say, so what? But I want to back up from that and say that part of the answer to that is Uh, Really rooted in who we are as worshipers We come to church We go to Sunday school We send our kids to classes We listen to sermons And Sunday morning You came back Sunday night And so much of why we come Is a humble and willing heart That you have and demonstrate so well Lord tell me what to do Tell me who to be It's a great thing to, to come in a search for And in that disposition We're looking for God's imperatives We just finished 10 of them Imperatives, do this, don't do that. However, when you come to description, when you come to historical narrative, what's the takeaway? We're going to read in a moment of what happened in the camp with the people after God gave the Ten Commandments. And there's no command in there for us. There's no imperative in there specifically to us. So the question becomes, so what? I think it's important to answer that question at the beginning of looking at a historical narrative before you get to the end and look back and say, so what? The so what of looking at historical narrative, and by that you understand what I mean, just a narrative that tells us what happened uh, in the Old Testament. Large sections of the New Testament are historical narrative. The Gospels are historical narrative. The book of Acts uh, is historical narrative. There are sections of the epistle that include historical narrative. Just tell us what happened. So what's the so what of historical narrative? Well, you got to be careful. Just because something happened doesn't mean that it's normative behavior for a believer. Just because an event is recorded doesn't mean that it's needing to be turned into an imperative for the church to go do. Yet, there are imperatives in implications from a text. There's a difference between application and implication. For example, an application would be, uh, God says, exercise self-control. And you're looking at a half a gallon of ice cream, your favorite ice cream, and you're thinking, I could get a cup out and measure a half a cup, which is the serving size, on an ice cream. No one needs a half a, cu- half a cup of ice cream. And you could say, My, I'm going to be self-controlled, so I'm only going to eat this. Or you could say, no, I'm, I'm going to leave one bite in the bottom of the paper container, and that will be self control because I wouldn't have Eating at all and if I said look be self-controlled so don't eat all the ice cream that's an application and to be honest with you applying scripture is like training wheels on a bike in other words it's very helpful to help you to help me when we're looking at a text especially in the beginning uh, understandings of God's words to say how does that apply to me that's a good question the greater and the more mature question to get to is to ask about implications What's implied by what's said on my life? Well, you're looking strategically for and at implications when you're looking at stories, at historical narrative. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that more than half of the Bible is written in historical narrative? You ever thought about why? I think God was very wise in understanding that it would be only, I don't know, mid-1800s and later before people could afford and have a copy of their own Bible. So he framed most of his revelation in stories. Stories that could be told with children. Stories that could be told among smaller groups than in the synagogue. We come tonight to a story. Now, before we read the story in Deuteronomy 5, now that I've had you turn there, I need you to turn back to Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> there are tremendous implications in this text and in the one in Deuteronomy. The, uh, the, the text in, a, in a Exodus really is the foundation, it's the, it's the original... Um, uh, story. It's the original uh, historical narrative on which Deuteronomy 5 reflects back. So let's start with the original. Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. <clears throat> now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke. Stop right there. Well, well no. You're very good, Bible students. Exodus 19 is right before what chapter? Exodus 20. What's in Exodus 20, class? The Ten Commandments, the first iteration of the Ten Commandments. So now we're seeing the setup. What happened before God spoke the Ten Commandments? Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Just pull your imagination over for a minute. This is intended to strike a major descriptive image on our spiritual retinas at a mountain. Truth is, in our vernacular, it's probably closer to a small mountain or a giant ridge. Close enough to where they could see what was happening on the top, and the people could discern that something phenomenal, a phenomenon was attacking and landing on the top of that mountain, because the Lord descended upon that mountain in fire. It's smoke Ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Can you see what the Holy Spirit is painting in your mind? This fire is on the mountain and the smoke is billowing off the top. And the whole mountain quaked violently. It's earthquakes. There's fire, there's smoke. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. A couple of days ago, we had a whopper of a thunderstorm right over our house. Did you guys experience that? Did it slide over yours as well, where the the lightning and the thunder are simultaneous? (laughs) Um I mean, chills on my arms was just, it was, it was scary. It was awe-some. In the dictionary sense, it was awe-full. And to watch my dog, uh, I have never had a better friend than my dog Daisy when that thunder happened. She uh, wanted in my lap, on my head, underneath my seat, anywhere to get away from that sound. Thunder is a is a violent attack on your senses, isn't it? This is happening. Earthquakes, thunder, fire, smoke. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Do you imagine the anxiety in his stomach walking up that mountain? Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Go down. Warn the people, so they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. What's going on here? Well, you find out later when Moses goes back up the mountain. We'll recount this in in Deuteronomy in in a a few months. He goes back up the mountain after uh, for a second time, spends another thirty days, and you know he comes back down. There's this party going on with the golden calf. He um, smashes the tablets. and then he goes back up. And this this same command is given that second time. Make sure that no one comes up on the mountain to gaze at the Lord. And then God says, and don't even let animals get close. Because to see God was to be incinerated, to be to be killed. Unredeemed flesh cannot endure the full vision of God. Now that's what happened then. Now I'll come back over to Deuteronomy 5, because Moses is going to retell this, get this, to people who weren't there. These are people who had no doubt heard about this from their parents. Can you imagine telling this to your kids as a grandfather, as, as, as an older parent, saying, you're not going to believe what happened on that night when, when Moses went up, and during the day, it was this massive pillar of cloud, looked like a tornado, and at night, that pillar of fire pillar of smoke turned into fire, and there was lights, and there was sound, and the earth was moving, and it was scary, really scary. Now we come to Moses in Deuteronomy 5, giving the narrative relating the Sinai revelation and Israel's response. This is Moses not only recounting, but remember, Deuteronomy, he theologizes about it. He, he puts his sermonic spin on it. I just want to have two textual markers as we move through this and with some implications at the end. The first textual marker is to look at verses 20 through 27. And this is man's fearful response to receiving God's word. Man's fearful response to receiving God's word. This is the rehearsal of the great theophany on Mount Sinai. Verse 22. These words, stop right there. That's the Ten Commandments. Those are the Ten Words. He just reiterated the Ten Commandments in the first 21 verses of chapter 5. These words, the Ten Words of Moses, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire. Now, your assembly there, he's talking to, remember, the children of the parents who would have experienced this. That's what your assembly is there. They've all died. This is the new generation about to cross the Jordan. You've probably heard about this, but Moses says, I want to tell you from a divine accountability standpoint what happened. These words, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, uh, of the cloud, of the thick gloom, the smoke, this inability to see through the atmosphere. With a great voice, and he added, No more words. He wrote them on two tablets of stone. Gave them to me. Moses says, God gave us, God gave me rather, these 10 words. He didn't give me any more. Now he would get the book of the covenant. uh, As you know, that's uh, described in in Exodus 24 and 25. But he's saying, these 10 commandments, that was the That was the top deck revelation. This was was the culmination and the, the, the combination of every law that would come afterwards. Jesus even said, all of those break down to two, right? Love God and love others. Verse 23. By the way, before we leave verse 22, notice that Moses affirms the Ten Commandments came specifically from God divine origin, comprehensive in nature. It's all the Lord needed to say. Now we come to verse 23. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. You said, Behold, The Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. One of the most important parallels to make in this passage is one of the most important theological uh, understandings in all of scripture. Look at what happened. Look at what happened. God showed us, which relates to what sense? Eyes. He showed us his glory and greatness and we have what heard his voice from the midst of the fire we've seen today that God speaks with man yet he lives now don't miss the theology here Everyone wants to know what that was like. Everyone wants to know what that looked like. We we love looking at YouTube, little funny things. We love watching TV and seeing. I would much rather watch a football game than listen to a football game. We want visual stimulation, but Moses says, what God said was so profound. His word was so epic that what we saw was secondary. We don't find out much visual here. In fact, he confuses us visually. Remember, I saw a bush. It was on fire, but it wasn't burning. Let me tell you what the bush said. And we're like, hey, "Hey, could you tell me a little bit more? I mean, was it like, were there ashes? Was it, what was that like?" He doesn't tell. He doesn't care about what it looked like. He does care about what that bush said. God is fundamentally a verbal God, right? He has left us a book, not a video. So we see that Moses is now moving into the position of mediator for the people. He has spoken with God and he's come back alive. Now, then, why should we die? People say, For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. Isn't it interesting? They say nothing about the lightning, nothing about the thunder, nothing about the earthquakes, nothing about the smoke, nothing about the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire, but they say if we would do what? If we hear the word of the Lord, if we hear his voice, then we're in trouble. Why? Visual stimulation doesn't evoke a moral response. God's voice and God's word evokes a moral response. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near Moses and hear all that the Lord our God says, then speak to us, all that the Lord God speaks to you. And then or, and then, then, then we'll hear it. What's going on here? People are saying, um, we're afraid of God. They're obviously afraid from the phenomenon. We already knew that that was a setup from Exodus 19. They they were trembling. This was an awkward, uh, natural, supernatural uh, event that they, they didn't really know how to process. And yet, what they're most afraid of is God and what he said. His moral justice that comes from his word. Specifically from those 10 words. When they heard what God said, when they heard what God expected... Rooted in who God is. Read the first few verses of of Exodus 20. talks about his nature. When they connected who God is with what God expects, they were afraid. Why? Because to see who God is and to know what God expects is to see your own sin. They had clearly seen this. I think that, I mean, I wouldn't put a lot of... Ridicule on these people. They they were afraid. They knew they were undone. And now it gets worse because after this, they say all that the Lord has commanded we will do. They say it twice in Exodus twenty four. And then Moses goes back up the mountain, and what do they do? They make a cow to worship. The people's response to God's word was right and holy and just. Fear. <clears throat> I love the fact that. Uh, and, Aaron, I'm I'm assuming this was on purpose because you're always so prepared. That singing the song that you wrote on Isaiah 66 goes right in square with this. Blessed are those who do what at God's word. Which one did God? Who does God look to? The one who trembles at His word. It doesn't say tremble at my sight. It doesn't say who sees me and describes the phenomenon right or wrong. It says blessed are those who tremble at moral. I will look to the one, the one who's contrite in spirit, who has a humble disposition. And that's all because the trembling, the, the awe-inspired shock on a soul comes from hearing who God is, what God expects, which turns out the light on who we are and our need for, right here, a mediator. I understand this. you know. God is holy, expects perfection. Um, Moses, I feel a little undone on this. Could you... Stand between us. Could you tell God about us, represent us to God, and and could you hear God's word and then come and, and teach us? That's what's going on in verse seven. You go hear what God says, and then you can come and tell us as a mediator. That'll make more sense when you look at the flip side. The second textual marker here is God's expectant response to giving his word. First we saw man's fearful response to receiving God's word. Now look at this last part of the text. God's expectant response to giving his own word. Now we look at the preparations for the covenant regulations and the covenant stipulations. That covenant being the ten words of Moses. Verse 28. The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And by the way, Moses is speaking in a historical past tense here. He knows that when he says you to this, this new generation, that they weren't there, he's speaking in this historical past tense. The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, to Moses, I've heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Very interesting. Very interesting. Moses, we would like a mediator between you and us. You might expect God to say, Wait a minute, wait a minute, don't you want me? And you know what? God says, That's okay. They've spoken well. The desire for and understanding our need for a mediator is the right response to the holiness of God. Job 9, John 19, 20, 21, 1 Timothy 2. We have one mediator between God and man. Who? The Lord Jesus Christ. It is a good thing to see God's holiness and think, I need a filter. I'm undone by that. And God says so. They've spoken well. They've spoken well. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me. We're okay right there. But watch the parallel and keep. All my commandments always. The Hebrew stacks up the alls and the always in a very interesting way. That they might all always keep the commandments that I've given. So why? That so that I will be the boss and everyone will know it and it's for me and for me alone. Now look at what it says. That it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Please don't miss that fundamental spiritual privilege. That obeying God is always for our good. Even if we miss out on a sinful desire and we feel the pain of not having that sinful desire fulfilled, it's for our good. God's commandments are for our good. If you don't believe that, talk to any older saint and have them in a very general way tell you as a younger person, tell me where you made bad sinful choices and how did that work out for you in the long run? Oh, I wish they would obey me. And look at the progress. I wish that their fear of me would cause them to obey me, which would bless them. Great spiritual principle right here, spoken by Moses to these new generations. Look at the generational dimension of this. That it may be, go well with them or be well with them and with their sons forever. That's an interesting little footnote because when we get in the next chapter... The whole point of of, uh, Deuteronomy 6 is know who God is, know what God's like, and make sure you transfer that to the next generation. Teach your sons, teach your daughters when you're sitting, when you're rising, when you're walking, always who God is has a discipleship application and implication for the next generation being trained. Go, say to them, return to your tents. God says, okay, guys, people, you're right. Go relax. This thunderous God, this God of fire is kind and gracious. How would they know that? They're alive still. But as for you, Moses, stand here by me, that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them. That's exactly what they asked for. That's exactly what God gives. I'm going to give you a mediator who will stand between you and me, that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. That is such a powerful promise. God told them hundreds of years before, 500 years before, going to bring you the land. And when you do, it's going to be your possession. And when you get there, please obey me. Same thing here. So, verse 32, you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. Be deliberate, be focused, go the way that I'm telling you to. You shall walk in all the direct, all the way, the path, which the Lord your God has commanded you. Please notice that God's commands for a believer's life are comprehensive. They impact every dimension and every sphere and every relationship and every job and every task and every homework assignment and every, you fill, up, fill in the blank. Comprehensive. You shall walk in all the way of the Lord, uh, in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you. That, see the principle again? Why? That you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. One of the great challenges, and I mean in a, in, a, in a really interesting and fun way of historical narrative is to, is to just cherry pick your the, theology proper out of a narrative. What's God like? What do we see about God? When something is described about God, that's God announcing this is what I'm like. Here's theology proper. What do we find out here just in this one verse in verse 33? Obedience that he requires, again, is good for us. And he wants it to go well with us. Doesn't that remind you of Romans 8? If God is for us, who's against us? If God is for you, no anxiety, no trial, and no trouble should be able to dislodge your loving confidence that God still cares. In fact, at the end of that chapter, Paul's going to say, what are we going to say? Shall this or this or this, you know, separate us from the love of God in Christ? What? No way. May it never be. It's the same promise and same principle here. Obey me. It's for your good. And if you do that, it's going to be for your blessing. And if you do that, watch this. I'm not a prosperity gospel teacher or preacher, but God will bless your life. It's very simple. Does God glorify himself through martyrs and through trials with people? Absolutely. But the general principle is that obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings cursing. Isn't that what we train our kids? If you obey, life will go well, or at least better than if you disobey, and then there is pain associated with that that I'm going to give you an illustration of because I love you. They asked to be given all of God's word in verse 27, so God dismisses the people, tells Moses he was going to iterate the law to them, teaches the people in verse 31, And says, I want you to have prosperity and peace. And I want life to go well for you in the promised land. I'm for you. We have a God who is for us and not against us. For those who believe in his name. Verse 29 tells us that we should have a comprehensive fear and obedience. And verses 32 and 33 tell us, Take care to do what God has commanded you to do, and God will continually take care of you. So now we're back to the beginning. That's what happened. That's what God said to the Jews who were there at Sinai. We weren't there. So what? What do you you take away from the description? You take away what you learn about God. What do you see about God in this passage? He reveals who he is. What a gracious God that is. We're never guessing. I wonder what kind of mood God's in today. I wonder if God likes me or doesn't like me today. I wonder if God's going to bless me or not bless me today. He tells us who he is and what he's like. He also tells us what he requires. What a gracious gift we as believers have by having the complete revelation of what he requires. So gracious. We're never in guesswork about what God wants from us. And we know this. God, you see this? Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, Proverbs 9. God's pattern is to bless obedience. Sometimes that blessing isn't even physical or of this world. It's the simple knowledge that he's saying now and one day will tell us, well done, what? Good and faithful servant. I think one of the things that stands out, though, that we take away from this description is that God was okay with the people wanting a filter. God was okay, perfectly okay, commended the people for wanting a mediator. Does your mind run to where mine runs? We have the ultimate mediator. Remember, we've gone over this over and over. In Job 9, one of the most important chapters in the Bible, he begins in Job 9, 1 and says... How can a man be in the right with God? And finishes that by saying, oh, I wish that God were a man, and I wish that he were a, there were a mediator who could understand my case to God and God's case to me. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2 says there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The, the, the Greek says a man. It's a narthrist. It has no definite article. It's not the man. It's a man, a human, Christ Jesus. God's intention is for the mediator, but one day, one day, Revelation 4, the saints gathered around the throne with God the Father, Revelation 5, with God the Son, the mediator and God the Father, and the Spirit indwelling and pushing all members of the Trinity for full enjoyment with the believer, because we'll have no more sin to separate us. What a God who would give us a mediator. When you read these passages about obedience, when you read these passages about repentance, especially in light of this, we spent months going through the Ten Commandments, but Moses is saying, what God just told you, be that, do that. Are you sensitive enough to hear God's voice I'm not a charismatic. I don't think he speaks verbally. But I'm very aware that when commands in the scripture are given, that the Holy Spirit can very quickly apply that to our heart. Can he not? And when he says, uh, do you see that in your life? It may not be verbal, but it's very clearly the Holy Spirit. The devil wouldn't tell me that, and I know my flesh wouldn't tell me that. There's only one place that kind of conviction could come from. So when you hear repentance and these 10 words of Moses, and you put all that together, are you able to say Thank you, Lord, for what you've identified. I want to have a clear path for and of repentance. And it sounds like it's too good to be true, but are you okay saying, because I know if I obey you, it's going to go good with me? You're going to (laughs) see cyclically. Over and over and over, Moses keeps telling this new generation, God wants to bless you. He is a blessing God. He's always in the disposition of wanting to pour blessings on his children. And the, the solicitation of those greatest blessings are obedience. They're obedience. There's also an eternal dimension to that. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are obeying Christ and his word now and that that actually bears eternal rewards in heaven? That's just... I mean, to think that God would reward any of of us knuckleheads? I mean, really? And by the way, that's what we will feel when we get there. We will take our crowns and we'll be happy to toss them back. And then he'll... In the words of the psalmist, he will put his finger under our chin that's bowed in sovereign worship and shame and call us friend? He's not ashamed to call us friend to his father now, Hebrews tells us. That's just, its almost it almost feels irreverent. It almost feels blasphemous to me. To say that Jesus is looking to this Holy Father who is full of thunder and smoke and fire and holiness and sinlessness and tells him, Romans 8, wait till we get to Romans 8 and he's praying for us right now and tells us, This is my friend. How often have you sung it? What a friend we have in Jesus. Do you believe that? Don't friends want the best for their friends? I love this passage because it just sings that God says, it will go well if you repent and if you obey. But the other side of the coin, if you refuse to repent and if you refuse to obey, just a few chapters, we're going to find the golden calf. And that didn't go so well. The first lesson we give our children is the lasting lesson of God our Father. Obedience solicits blessing. Disobedience solicits problems. I look at this text and I I, I think of God's um, sanction on the desire for a mediator. And I just... I find myself feeling so glad to be living today on this side of the closing of the canon after the cross, after the resurrection with a mediator who calls us his friend who daily intercedes for us he and the spirit do and you just gotta eventually just say really, really really for me which takes us right back to where we started the greatest application and the greatest implication from historical narrative is to walk back and say, what a God. What a God we have. So when you're reading those stories, don't miss God. He wants to be seen and noticed and praised. We don't have to come to every text and say, what am I supposed to do when I leave here? You know what the biggest do from a passage like this is? Worship a gracious God who's given us a mediator and who gives us blessing from obeying him and who also gives us discipline for disobeying him. That's a grace, isn't it? If he didn't discipline us when we, I mean Hebrews 12, if he didn't discipline us when we disobeyed, we would just be fully given to disobedience. So when you tell your little kids, parents, I'm really disciplining you because I love you, I'm glad you say that, and it's true. But when God disciplines you and me, let's remember that same lesson, that same disposition. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you. And in their specific context, they would dwell in that land and possess it. When you see the course of the nation of Israel beginning in Joshua, I don't want to say seasons. I was going to say in seasons of obedience, in days, in instances of obedience, God blessed. But in times and seasons of disobedience, which were massive, all the bad kings of Israel, all the, you know, 40 kings and only eight good ones. During those times, it wasn't that God sent down lightning bolts to show them the consequences of their disobedience. You know what he typically did? He says, is that what you want? Have at it and see how that works out for you. The greatest, I think, uh, um, assurance in my own salvation is I don't get away with hardly anything. God is so kind to confront me. I have four people in my life at home who God uses regularly to say, Do you you see? Here's a mirror. Do you see what I see? You see what's wrong with you? Please correct that. Please discipline, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness so that I don't discipline you for the purpose of godliness. It's a grace to be able to see that. question becomes, do you see and what do you do? Why? Because we've looked at God and said, what a God. Behold your God. The leader said to Israel over and the prophet said to Israel over and over and over. Behold your God. And if you see God rightly You'll love his regulations because you'll know that they're for your good and for his glory. Everyone wins in in obedience. And we lose most in disobedience. Thanks. Nice look at this passage. So, what are you going to freshly repent of tonight? We talk about this at communion, but how about tonight? What, what are you going to drive home and talk to your wife, your kids, your friends, your family? What are you going to go and talk? What, what are you going to freshly repent of tonight? Repent, therefore, and return, Acts 3.19 says, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You want to have a, a refreshed time with the Lord? Find something to repent of. God blesses repentance That is going to be hammered in. Wait till we get to chapter 6. Not only does he bless repentance, he also tells us that if we teach our children and their children and even grandchildren, verse 2, his grandchildren are already there, about the pattern of God, here's who I am, what I expect, I'll bless you for obeying me. If we teach that, then the community of Israel was going to be blessed. And I think that same principle applies to us in the church as well. It's a way of God, and God doesn't change. I'm thankful for our mediator. I'm thankful for these principles, and I'm thankful for the God who reveals himself, and we can walk and walk away saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Can you pray with me? I love your stories, Father. I love when you, through Moses, retell your stories and what happened Thank you for showing me, for showing us that you didn't rebuke the people for wanting a mediator. That when these people saw your awesome majesty and your terrifying might, they wanted a mediator. We too. And we see your awesome majesty, your terrifying might, your ways, your wonders, and your glaring focus from a pure heart and purest eyes at our sin and our sinfulness. And we see that the mediator you provided became like us, that he might taste death for us and instead of us. We're amazed. Father, you've taken care of everything for us and thank you that we live in 2013 and can look back at all of your revelation in one book. So make our repentance fresh. Send times of refreshing. And Father, I already want to pray as we begin Deuteronomy 6, such a powerful passage which talks about our need to know you and love you and pass that on to the next generation. Please make our church a church that has a culture of discipleship, passing on truth, because we understand it and we're living it. Thank you for your truth, thank you for your word, thank you for this law. Help us to behold wonderful things in it and walk away changed. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit